Uh, my name is Sean. I'm one of the elders here. I want to just welcome you all on this uh, Lord's Day, uh, Easter Sunday, where we give special emphasis and attention to celebrating the gift that is ours in the new life that is found in Christ, who is resurrected. He's risen from the grave. Uh, I, I've enjoyed being with you this morning already, the fellowship uh, beforehand, uh, just singing together, praying together, reading God's Word together, and now being able to look into God's Word uh, again. Uh, take your Bibles and find your way to John 16. If you're a guest and the Bible is intimidating to you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and grab one from the seat back pocket uh, uh, in front of you and in the table of contents. You'll see uh, Old Testament and New Testament. We are in the New Testament and we are in the Gospel of John, which is uh, the fourth Gospel there. You can find that uh, there in the Bible and, uh, and follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to take that with you. It would be our delight to let that be our gift to you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, please uh, plan to take that home with you and make that your own. John chapter 16 this morning. Have you had to have, have you had to say goodbye to someone? Have you had to say goodbye to someone for maybe a long time? A dear one, a loved one? Um, maybe uh, you've seen those uh, videos of servicemen who've uh, personnel have come back from being deployed and the, the, the happy reunion of a family welcoming uh, their loved one back. And of course, we realize that the joy of, of that reunion was the down payment of that was the sorrow of a goodbye that was done many months beforehand. Some of you have lived through that and experienced that yourself firsthand. Or maybe you've said goodbye to a loved one through death as, uh, as they passed away. Uh, goodbyes are hard. Goodbyes are sorrowful, often. And in John 16, the Apostle John writes about his and his fellow disciples' struggle with a goodbye of their own, a goodbye that they were faced with. And it was read for us this morning in John 16, where Jesus has said to them, a little while, in verse 16, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. This is one of those sections of Scripture where you just read through it, it almost sounds a little kind of like Yoda-like, right? A little while you'll see me and a little while you won't. And yet, some of his disciples said to one another, they're, they're confounded by this, right? What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I'm going to the Father. If you remember that uh, the disciples had been with Christ now for uh, three years following him, uh, ministering with him, uh, being taught by him, and all their hopes and expectations were on Jesus as God's sent one. But they had some misaligned expectations all wrapped up into that as well. And so what would you say if your spouse or a parent or a loved one were to walk up to you and said, hey, in a little while I'm going to go and you won't be able to see me. But it's okay, in a little while I'll be back. You might wonder, well, where are you going? And why are you leaving? And why can't I see you? You'd have some follow-up questions. You'd want some clarification. But Jesus doesn't give that. Instead, Jesus gives them a promise. And that's my hope this morning. In this sermon on this Resurrection Sunday is that I hope for us to be able to focus on this promise that Jesus gives his followers that I hope for Christians in here this morning will encourage and strengthen your heart in the Lord. And if you aren't a Christian, if you're not part of the people of God this morning, through faith in Christ, it's my hope that hearing this promise that you will be interested and curious and drawn to know Christ as Lord and Savior this morning. So what is the promise that Jesus gives them? 
Well, as we read through John 16, and it was read for us this morning, when Jesus says that in a little while he's going to leave, a little while he'll come back, and they're wondering what he's doing, what he's saying, they don't know what he's talking about, verse 18. Verse 19, then Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he gives them um, kind of a, a word picture here um, in verses 20 and 21, and then he goes on and tells them that he will turn their sorrow into joy. Jesus promises to turn their sorrow into joy. And that is the promise of the resurrection. God's people, because of the resurrection, can be confident that, and, and have a confident hope that their sorrow will one day be turned into joy. Look at, back at chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, Jesus tells us what he has in mind as he is speaking to them. He has a specific purpose in mind. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Verse, chapter 16, verse 1. The events that are soon going to unfold are going to rock the followers of Christ. Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested, falsely accused, tried, and sentenced to death. And although being with Jesus was amazing, Jesus assures them in these passages that there's something better for them than his physical presence. And that something better is going to come after he goes away. And so what we learn here is that as as we keep reading through the New Testament, that as great as it has been to have Jesus with them, after he has risen and ascended, he will be within them. And that's even better than Jesus being with them. But still, all of this doesn't remove the fact that the disciples are still wrestling with the fact that Jesus is saying goodbye and it's troubling his followers. They're difficult. So what can we learn about the relationship between the resurrection of Jesus and a Christian's joy that are found in this passage. Here's the first truth for us this morning. Resurrection joy comes after sorrow. Resurrection joy comes after sorrow. Now, I know this is countercultural. Our culture is crazed with finding happiness and fulfillment no matter the cost. This idea of follow your heart, do whatever feels good because it is good, just pursue your own dreams, be your own person, choose your own happiness, and yet the scriptures over and over again present a much different story about life in this sin-cursed world. And for Christians, it is a life that is sorrow comes before joy. Now, notice the order that Jesus gives in verse 20. They're going to experience sorrow, great sorrow, weeping, in fact. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for what they're going to face when he gets arrested and tried and crucified. And their sorrow is going to be overseeing that happening to Jesus himself, but also there's going to be an internal sorrow of them uh, abandoning Christ in his time of greatest need. I mean, he's arrested and they scatter, they run. In fact, this idea of sorrow that Jesus talks about in verse 20 is not the kind of crying you have while watching a chick flick or a Hallmark card advertisement. The type of sorrow that Jesus uses, that word there, describes a bitter, intense weeping. Some of you have had that, maybe this week. It describes Peter in Matthew 26 when he is accused of being a follower of Jesus by some folks that are nearby, and he denies that he has anything to do with Christ. And that happens again and again, three times in fact. And on that third time, Peter remembered in Matthew 26... He remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Those are the same words. 
So Jesus was talking about his death when he said, a little while you will not see me. He knew that he would be the sacrificial lamb. It's what we observed and, and remembered together as a church family just a couple of days ago on Friday night on their Good Friday service. He, Jesus knew that his followers would be full of sorrow. And of course, we understand what is recorded in the scriptures that Jesus actually does deliver them in a way that matters most. They thought that Jesus was lost to them, that he needed to be delivered. In fact, those that were mocking Christ said, hey, he said he could save us. Let him save himself. And yet Jesus was actually giving himself to deliver others, us, from sin and death. Well, all through the New Testament, we see this order of sorrow before joy, suffering before glory. And Jesus set that pattern in his own life. If you've been with us uh, for our series in Philippians, you remember that in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul gives Christ as kind of the, the climactic illustration of unity and humility. And he describes what Jesus did in his life by describing his suffering, how he gave up, how he suffered, how he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. In fact, the scriptures teach that unless you first have sorrow over your acts and attitude of rebellion against God, you will never experience the joy God offers in salvation. The resurrection offers no joy to those who have never sorrowed over their sin. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. These are well-known words from the Beatitudes. He said, blessed or happy. That's another word for happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so in verse 20 of chapter 16 here in John, I notice that there are two responses to Jesus and his death that are recorded here that are kind of pointed out for us that Jesus says. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Those two are contrasted. You have one group that is weeping and lamenting, another group that is rejoicing. What's going on here? Well, some, described as the world in verse 20, rejoice in Jesus' death like somebody would rejoice in the downfall of an enemy. And there were those in that day that were. There were Roman centurions that were rejoicing. There were the religious elites of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, that were saying, hey, we finally have victory over this guy who we've been trying to get rid of for a while now. They were rejoicing in that way. But others, the followers of Jesus, sorrowed over the death of Christ because they were seeing their Lord and Savior, the one and their hopes were set on being killed. The result, though, is that their sorrow is turned into joy through the salvation that is found in Christ, which was read this morning from Luke, where they go to a tomb, right? A place of sorrow and sadness, and they are struck with an empty tomb and an angelic messenger, and they stoop in and they see this, and they go and they tell everyone. Why? Because... He has risen. So which one describes you? What response do you have to the death and the resurrection of Christ? Is this kind of just a religious, mythical fairy tale that people kind of use for, you know, for tough days, for sad times? Or are your, is your heart full of sadness as you consider the cost of salvation in Christ and gladness as you consider the resurrection of Christ for you. You see, if you have not embraced Jesus by faith, then the resurrection gives you no joy. Because the resurrection is simply a down payment, a warning of Jesus' return to be your judge, because you stand condemned in your sin if you reject the gift of Christ. 
But if you would embrace Christ by faith to be your payment for sin, to be the one who brings you to God into right relationship through the gift of His righteousness, then the resurrection is not a promise of dread and condemnation, but a promise of love and eternal joy. And that's where this text is going, right? It's going towards that promise where Jesus says, listen, I will turn your sorrow into joy. Friends, that will never happen if you reject Christ. And so I would invite you, if you're not a Christian, if this whole idea, if you're, if you're here at a church because it's kind of, well, it's what people do on Easter and on Christmas. We show up at church. We kind of do that thing. Friends, it's much more than that. Christianity is not just a religious expression. It's not just ethical demands to be fulfilled. You're not earning your way into God's graces. Christianity is this message of you can't do it. You are such a scoundrel in your sin. We are so lost in our sin. It took nothing else but the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the God-man, to pay for our sin and to bring us back into right relationship. Now, sorrow precedes joy. And you think, well, I came to church on a Sunday morning on Easter and I was hoping for some encouragement. And you just told me there's sorrow before joy. I'm going to go find some other place next year. Well, hang on, hang on. Now, friends, if we're honest, the sorrows of this world, the sorrows of our life can be pretty awful, can't they? I mean, the sorrows that we can experience in life can be horrific. Like, there are some sorrows that some people go through that I don't know if really you ever can get over, you can really ever recover from entirely. Sorrows in this life can leave us with scars. They can be dreadful. And so I bring that up in the sense of, you might be wondering, okay, Jesus says, I'm going to turn your sorrow into joy. Yeah, that's like nice, easy, religious, you know, pie-in-the-sky talk. But can the joy that God offers really match and overcome the sorrows that we can experience in this life? And the answer to that is yes. Yes. And I'll prove it to you here as we, look, continue, as we continue to look in this text. In verse 20, he says, You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Notice that Jesus uses the word turn. Jesus does not promise to replace your sorrow. He promises to turn your sorrow into joy. And this is miraculous. This is kind of like uh, mind-boggling here, right? Um, as parents, right, if you've got a kid who's you know, sad because uh, you know, something got taken away or they didn't get what they want, you're going to try to replace their sorrow with something joyful. And the, 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 uh, um, that's called bribing uh, sometimes, right? Okay? They're angry because you told them to sit down or they're buckled up in their car seat or whatever else and you're trying to replace their sorrow, right? Hey, it's not so bad. Here, have some more candy, have some more gummies or whatever, right? You're trying to replace it. Jesus is not the parent just throwing gummies at us. It's not what he's doing. He's doing something far greater, far grander. Jesus uses an illustration in verse 21 and following to get his point across. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, right? She's in labor and delivery. Uh, But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I've seen this happen first time in kind of dramatic fashion with the birth of our second born. Almost was born in the, in the car. And I remember the intensity of Shannon in that moment. We should have left for the hospital sooner. And it was like real and intense. I was on the phone with a, with a police officer friend because I was 
I'm, I'm like being recorded here. Is this bad? I was breaking, I was speeding, trying to get to the hospital, and I was concerned. I was like, is this okay? And he said, just go, just go. And he heard Shannon in the background on the phone. He thought I was laughing. He was teasing. And he's like, oh, you're serious? Yeah. The, the, the sorrow, the intensity. And yet, um, we got to the hospital. Fifteen minutes later, Esther was born. And in that short period of time, that intense sorrow was replaced. It was, retur- it was turned. Sorry, it was turned into joy. Joy at the birth of this new little baby. That is the very thing that happens with the resurrection and our sorrow. The resurrection is so powerful. It is so transformational that Jesus has confidence that, listen, you're going to have sorrow, but because I am going to die and I will rise again and I will offer that to you by faith, your sorrow will be turned into joy. And that's what happened to the disciples, right? As you read through the Gospels, you find they're overcome with sorrow. Jesus is dead. His body is wrapped in grave clothes. It's buried in a tomb. The women are weeping, John 20 says. And yet three days later, they see him alive. And here's what's recorded. John 20, verse 20, it says, he said this and they showed him, he showed them his hands and his side, right? I mean, they're in disbelief. So would you, right? I mean, you would think I'm having hallucinations. I'm not having lasagna again for dinner for a long time. I mean, you, you would be just dumbfounded if the guy that you saw executed by Roman crucifixion now and was buried in a tomb now is standing there in front of you. You'd be thinking, what, what is happening here? So he shows them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. What a small little word to convey such powerful joy. They were glad when they saw the Lord. So this morning as we celebrate the resurrection today, we are celebrating the promise that our sorrow will be turned into eternal joy. Now, life in this sin-cursed world is full of sorrow. Some of you have experienced it even this morning. But even the best joys that we experience in this world aren't free from the aftertaste of sin. And isn't that frustrating? The best things in this life, the greatest vacations, the greatest gifts, the greatest experiences and relationship, the greatest joys that we might have in this world, always have that lingering, that, that, that aftertaste of it just doesn't quite live up to everything. And there's something, right? You've, you've had this where you've been looking forward to something and in the back of your mind you're thinking, all right, what's going to ruin this? Right? You've got a vacation plan, you're thinking, okay, when am I going to get sick? Or what kid's going to break a leg or something? You kind of, right? I mean, we kind of start to get jaded, right? But here... I want to prove to us from the scriptures that sorrow actually turns into joy for the Christian. And if you're not a Christian, this is not a truth that is for you unless you embrace Christ. Because the promises that are encased in these scriptures are anchored in the resurrection of Jesus. And that is not going to be true for you if you reject Christ. Now as I read these Bible passages, I want you to listen for how the truths of the gospel, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again, right? Risen and coming again how it anchors and how it can turn our sorrow into joy. 1 Peter chapter 1. I think I might have these on screen as well. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what end? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, guarded in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what's our response to this? In this you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's sorrow before joy. <laughs> right? I love, the real, I love the realism of Peter. Listen, there's sorrow, but listen, you have great joy because you have an inheritance that is yours. It's kept. It's guarded. And how is it that you have that? Because Jesus Christ is risen. And if you are united to him in faith, then you have that promise. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the revelation of Jesus Christ is, a, is a, talking about the return of Christ, a resurrected return, the, the return of a resurrected Christ. Or again, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. There again, sorrow as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And again, if you're not a Christian, you kind of scratch your head at that and go, you guys are weird to rejoice in suffering. But friends, this is why, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Sorrow before joy. God will turn our sorrow, right? The fiery trials, the testings, he's going to turn it into joy. Why? Because we're united to him, a resurrected Christ. And here, I think it's probably my favorite, Romans chapter 8, verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, put a pin there. I don't know if you've ever, I haven't done this, but I hear you can go see the crown jewels of London, England, the, you know, those fancy people over there. The king and queen, sorry, I couldn't think of the names, right? The king and queen, right? Imagine if you were an heir of all that. And you're like, wow, that's nothing. You know, let me be an heir of like Amazon or you know, some, some billionaire investment thing. Okay, fine. Let's say you're an heir of that. You're going to inherit that. Friends, God has upped it all. He says that you are heirs of God. Right? And God's not limited to, you know, FDIC insured bank deposits. He's not. Right? I mean, the absurdity of that, right? I mean, you're an heir of God. So let that sink in, right? Then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, here it is, provided we suffer, right? Sorry before glory. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider, hear these words, friends, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. God turns sorrow into joy, and part of that is done by how he transforms you into the image of his Son. And some of the ways that he does that is through the sorrow that you even experience in this life. But it's not lost. It's not wasted. He turns sorrow into joy. That phrase in Romans 8, the glory that is to be revealed to us, that is a resurrection glory. You can read about it in Revelation. It's like it knock your socks off kind of glory. Now this resurrection promise can give us spiritual inner strength as Christians today. What sorrows are you facing in this life right now as a Christian? Maybe something that you feel like giving up on. It's been relentless. Maybe it's been, maybe it's been a sorrow that's chased you for years. Christian friend, I want to encourage you. Trust that God has glories that he will reveal to you one day that will make the sufferings of this present age not even worth comparing. Let that sink in. 
That is a God-sized promise. That, that we would, that really, that the glories are so grand and so great that we would say, yeah, but you don't, re- you don't remember the sorrow that I had. I mean, it's like it just vaporizes the memories of those sorrows. It's kind of what the Bible is saying. The glories are so great and so grand. Friends, God can live up to that promise. God does not write checks that will bounce. He can do it. He can do it. And friends, just remember, um, God is God. I mean, go look at a night sky and look at the stars and just kind of think, okay, the God who created all of that can certainly create glories and pleasures and eternal delights that will make the sorrows of this world just vaporize. Not even comparable. Now, you might say, okay, cool, but the promise of turning sorrow into joy might seem great, but is it going to last? And that's where Jesus makes this even better because the resurrection doesn't just promise to turn sorrow into joy for a season, momentarily, right? Can I give you kind of a good three hours in an afternoon? Jesus promises to turn our sorrow into eternal joy. Endless joy. And that's what we find in verse 22. He says here that uh, he uses the word picture, the analogy, we talked about that. In verse 22 it says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Now notice the last part of verse 22. And no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. The 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 promise of joy is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus for his children is a promise of eternal joy. It's not seasonal. It's not temporary. It's not momentary. John 16, 22, no one will take your joy from you. That's an astonishing promise. And you could test that out in Scripture. I mean, does that mean that Paul never was sad? No. It's not. But friends, as you read through the New Testament, I mean, think of Acts. Now, if you're a Christian, you'll be familiar with some of these stories. If you're not, I'll try to fill in some of the background for you. But in Acts, you have stories of Christians being persecuted because they believed that Jesus had risen again and they were telling people about salvation in Jesus alone. And the the, the Greco-Roman world hated that because they worshipped many gods. And part of that was a patriotic expression of who they were as Greco-Roman citizens. And so they would beat Christians and imprison Christians and tell them to shut up and stop talking in the name of Jesus. Stop it. And that we have stories of Paul and Silas having that happen to them. They were, they were arrested, they were beaten, they were thrown in prison. That's all kind of sad stuff. But what were they doing in prison late that night? Some of you know this, right? They were singing. How is that possible? Jesus said it, no one will take your joy. No one. When you have an encounter with the resurrected Christ as Lord and Savior, when you have the condemnation and guilt of your sin taken away entirely, not because you've earned it, not because you've, met a, you've, met a, you've reached a quota of good works and you, you think you've got that nailed down, but there's still that worry and anxiety in your head. No. It's entirely through Jesus who says, it is finished, I've paid it all. There's a joy that cannot be taken. And so... When you are united to Christ by faith, that is an eternal union. It's an endless then source of joy. So we're told in the scripture in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from Christ if you are one of God's children. Verse 35 of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
And we are recipients of the life of Christ through the love of Christ that is poured out to us in the gospel. What shall separate us? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things, sorrow, we are more than conquerors. Joy through him who loved us. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 28, when he gives them the commission, he says, look, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is a promise that was, was used by the author of Hebrews. He's reaching back into the Old Testament promises that were given to Joshua and Moses and the children of Israel, God's people in that, in that age. And he's drawing that forward to encourage Christians in his age. In Hebrews 13:5, he says, he reminds the Christians there, Jesus says this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, notice in verse 22 that the joy that, that they will experience is connected to them seeing Jesus again. They see Jesus again. So verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And here's the response. And your hearts will rejoice. Now, the pleasures offered in this world are not eternal, but Jesus is. Earthly pleasures, even the best of them, are temporary. They're just mere shadows of the greater joy that's found in knowing God. But in verse 22, what we find here is that Jesus cares about our joy. In fact, all through this discourse, John 14, 15, 16, all through this, I mean, God, Jesus is telling them that he's working for their joy, that what he said is for their joy. Now, I want to connect here as we, as we wrap this up. I want to connect for us this resurrection promise of eternal joy with seeing and being with Jesus. Now, we have a hard time with that in our modern secular age. Our modern secular age is doing everything it can to destroy and remove the transcendent from our lives. What I mean by that is modernism has, is the idea of that life is everything that you can see and know and touch, tangible, you can explain with science or with, with, with some sort, right? It's, it's all going to be based on, on that. And they've removed the idea of the transcendent. And this is very unique and unusual when you look at world history. For thousands of years, world history, everybody agreed and accepted and embraced the, the reality of the transcendent, that there's something greater out there than us. Our modern age, post-postmodern age, is the idea of, no, this is all that there is. We are it, we live, we die, and this is our experience. It's very physical, it's called secularism. And so as Christians in a modern age, we kind of hear this idea of joy and Jesus, and you're like, but I can't even see Jesus. I mean, Jesus hasn't shown up for dinner. We haven't had like game night together. We're not going on hikes together. So how, what is this whole idea you're talking about with joy and, and eternal, and it's with Jesus I mean, I get the idea of joy on going on travels or joy on purchasing something or joy on, on having a relationship or, you know, those kind of tangible things there. And yet as Christians, the scriptures are talking about a joy that's found in knowing and relating with God through Christ. Like, well, that's, that seems abstract. Is that really possible? And the answer to that is yes. And that's why Christians are described as people who live by faith. Now, in, um, there's a couple places that we could go for this, but I'll go into Acts 2, and you don't have to turn there. I'll have some passages for us. But in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter preaches a sermon. 
And in that sermon, he quotes from Psalm 16. And what I think is happening here in Peter is that he's realizing that Psalm 16, Psalm of David, there's more going on in that psalm than just David. That Jesus is the fulfillment of what's happening in Psalm 16 in ways that David couldn't. And Peter now, having seen the crosswork of Christ and Jesus is buried and then he is risen from the grave and they've seen Jesus, they've eaten with Jesus, Jesus has taught them and then he's asc- Jesus has ascended and said, I'm going to come back. Peter now is connecting. Ah. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies, of all that's going on here. David's talking about more than just himself. And in Psalm 16, there's these great themes of joy and rejoicing. And what Peter does is he connects the joy found in God with the resurrection of Jesus. Peter realizes that in Psalm 16, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that psalm. There's more going on there than just what David was saying, that David is actually speaking about Jesus who is going to be the fulfillment of it. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, Peter says this, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. And he's doing this in reference to having quoted from Psalm 16. He spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, of Jesus, and that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter realizes, well, of course, David can't be the fulfillment of that because David was buried and David's body was corrupted. It fell apart. But Jesus is the one who came back. And so what connection does Peter now see about Jesus and our joy and the resurrection in Psalm 16? Well, Peter shows that to us when he quotes Psalm 16, verse 11, which reads this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're like, wow, that sounds like, every, that sounds like what everybody in life in the world wants. They want that. And you might still be wondering, well, where's the connection between our joy, Jesus, and the resurrection? The connection is here, right? In Psalm 1611, which is quoted in connection to Jesus who is resurrected, about fullness of joy, the path of life, right hand are pleasures forevermore, right? You want pleasures forevermore, you're going to find them at your right hand, at God's right hand. Well, the author of Hebrews tells us this. In chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Sorrow before glory, right? Despising the shame, he actually ridiculed the shame, looked down upon it, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Is this, are you seeing the connection here? Psalm 1611, Peter says this is connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. The author of Hebrews is saying, guess what? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, resurrected. And he's waiting his return. So then for us, this means that Jesus seated at the right hand of God it means our resurrected Jesus is the source of a Christian's eternal joy. So then, so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, Christians, think of it this way. On Resurrection Sunday, I want to encourage us as God's people to press into knowing and enjoying Christ. Sometimes I wonder if we kind of get this idea of yeah, the idea of Jesus, but it's abstract. It's not tangible, physical. We live in a tangible, physical, secular world. What are we supposed to do with all that? Friends, I want to encourage you that the joy that you're searching for in life cannot be found in that relationship with your spouse or with your kids. It 
cannot be found in your next trip or your next purchase or your next career advancement or your next accomplishment. The joy that you are looking for most in life is found and offered only through Jesus, a resurrected King, a Lord and Savior. That's where Christians should find their joy. You say, ah, but I'm going through a lot of sorrow. Friends, believe the promise of God through Christ that he will turn your sorrow into joy. And he can do that. How? Because he rose from the grave. Death is the great destroyer of joy. Right? I mean, it's the thing that destroys joy. The greatest friendship, marriage, relationship, there's always this foreboding of someday it's going to end, either because they will die or you will die. Jesus overcame that, which means he can give you the joy that you long for most. He will turn your sorrow into joy. I'll ask the music team to come up and get ready to lead us in our closing songs. If you're not a Christian, I would encourage you and invite you again to consider knowing Christ, confessing Him as Lord and Savior. I can think of nothing better to happen to you on a Resurrection Sunday than to put your faith in the resurrected Christ. Christian friend, I'm going to leave us with these last two passages. I think one was already read this morning, but I want you to listen for the eternal joy that is promised in these verses. In John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this?